Hello, readers. Adam Savage is a maker, former host of Mythbusters, and current host of Mythbusters Jr. and Savage Builds on Discovery. He's also the author of a book, Every Tool's a Hammer, Life is What You Make It. Adam, thank you for the time. How's it going today? Very good, Trey. Well, uh, Adam uh, had a chance to read the book over the last couple of weeks as somebody who is interested in not only how successful people got there, but also the creative process. I was very fascinated by the book from beginning to end. What was your goal in writing this book? Uh, My goal was, it came about sort of, I'd say halfway through, I realized that my goal was to inspire people to build. I, I, whenever I read a book about making or about an artist, uh, it makes my hands itch to get to the workshop and start building. And I desperately hope that that's what people take away from this book. You write that the act of making has driven you throughout your life. What does making mean to you? Well, I love that question. Making means so much more to me than just the physical construction of things. To me, making is a a fairly recent term for the oldest human endeavor, which is making tools and objects in order to trade stories. Uh, Making is everything from carpentry to dressmaking to cabinetry to, uh, you know, to singing and dancing and and writing poetry. It is making is any time you reach out to put your own stamp on a story. Well, Adam, you've made a ton of different things over the course of your life. How difficult was making and putting together a book compared to uh, some of the other stuff that you've made? I'll be honest, writing this book was an incredibly difficult endeavor. I was uh, I was I was not prepared for the amount of work and uh, it, it was it was all encompassing for a few months. Um, but I am really happy with where it came out. It is also a very different book than I expected to write, um, but I, I, I let it sort of form itself as I was writing it, and uh, I'm really pleased with the result. Considering that stepping outside of your comfort zone tends to teach one very valuable lessons, was there something that you learned throughout the process of writing Every Tool's a Hammer? Absolutely. I, I, I really learned the power of, of storytelling on a much grander scale than I have explored before. I've written a lot. I've written television. I've written articles. I've, uh, I've also written how-tos, um, but never anything uh, at, this, at, at this gargantuan number of, of, of words. And really being able to dive this far into a subject uh, and, and figure out a structure that holds all these stories and all these anecdotes and all these ideas I have about the philosophy of making and, the, and creativity in general was, was incredibly educational. You do a really good job of telling stories around the concepts that you have found important in living a happy, satisfied life. On that note, what are secret thrills and why is it so important to pursue them? Well, secret thrills are those things that you can't stop thinking about, whether you're obsessed with architecture or the history of shoes or or swinging swords. Uh, Secret thrills are those subjects that always make you stop to pay a little more attention. And so many people don't give due diligence to their secret thrills. And I want this book to be a permission slip for people to follow those secret thrills and follow them where they lead them. Um, None of my hobbies are, quote-unquote, 
useful to the world, and yet my exploration of them makes me useful to the world. They are the engine of everything that I've achieved. You once asked filmmaker Guillermo del Toro if there was a commonality to all really good films, to which he responded that all great movies have at least one champion. What does that mean, and how is that concept important to the story you're telling in Every Tool's a Hammer? Oh, that's a great question. I think that what Guillermo means when he says that is that it takes a genuine passion for the thing to bring something to fruition. And it may be the passion of an entire group of people, but it has to be the passion of at least one person. And one person's passion can sometimes be enough to pull an entire project across the line. And that passion comes from obsession. It's not something you can impose upon yourself. It's something you bring out from within yourself. And that is absolutely the subject of the book, is ways in which I've learned to explore those passions. I've learned how to foment them and what I've learned when I did that. Adam, you sing the praises of making lists. Why are lists such an important part of your routine? Lists are a vital part of everything that I make, whether it's renovating my basement or making a a, a prop from Hellboy. For me, lists are one of the key ways in which I put the parameters of a project into my head and help my brain absorb a project. There's often, when you start to dive into something, there's often too much information to hold in your head all at once. And lists have become an extension of my brain's ability to manage projects. I was I love uh, making lists. I also I also love crossing things off of the list. <laughs> to me, a checkbox to the left side of every list <laughs> item is vital. That's right. The checkbox is key, and uh, that's something that I hadn't considered before as somebody who makes the list. So you do provide instructions for the reader on how you do make those lists, and over time, the checkbox became an important part of that process for you. How do you use the checkbox? Uh, well, I put a checkbox next to every every uh, every uh, line item, and when the project is halfway done, uh, when that line item is halfway done, I color the box in diagonally. I color one half of the box in. When the project is all the way done, I color the box all the way in. And there's nothing more pleasurable to me than looking at a full page of uh, many many items with dark checkboxes to their left all the way down the line. That builds momentum for me. It actually gives me more energy to continue. And as I'm going on a project and I'm going to stumble and I'm going to hit obstacles, those darkened-in little checkboxes are my marker that I'm actually making progress. They're, they're part of my map through the jungle of the project. Well, that's something that everybody can use, Adam, and and I'm curious, was there a moment in in your life, maybe you just weren't getting as much done as you wanted to? I mean, is there something that sparked your creation of this uh, checkbox method? No, the checkbox method came about from one of my supervisors at Industrial Light and Magic, George Lucas's special effects shop. Uh, I spent five years there in the late 90s and early aughts, and uh, they're some of the best model makers on the planet. And one of my supervisors, Brian Grenan, uh, showed me that technique shortly after I arrived at ILM, and it changed my life. As somebody who loves stand-up comedy and also vulgarity, I was very amused to learn of the first list you ever wrote out. Uh, how old were you, and what was that list? <laughs> the first list I ever made was a list of all the curses from George Carlin's 
second HBO special. And I believe I was about 10 or 11 years old. This is the late 70s. Uh, and 11-year-old uh, me couldn't believe that people were cursing on television. Uh, this was in the early, early days of cable. Uh, it was such a novelty to hear curses on the TV. Uh, and then 11-year-old me was intoxicated to think that I could have a comprehensive list of all the curses, most of which I had no idea what they meant. So many years later, which is your favorite of those words? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I can say it in any publicly accessible forum. <laughs> fair, fair enough, fair enough. Adam, why is the phrase, use more cooling fluid, a literal and figurative rallying cry for you in life? Well, you know, it, it was an answer to the question, what would I tell my young self if I could take a time machine back and confront them? Use more cooling fluid, I said. And I was kind of making a joke, but I was also referring to all the times that I didn't take that extra second to do something in the right way. When you use cooling fluid to drill a hole or cut a piece of you are extending the life of your tools. You're increasing the accuracy of your cuts. And that extra minute it takes to both set it up and to clean it up yields so many dividends on the other side of the project. A stitch in time really does save nine. And so for me, the idea of using more cooling fluid is, in a practical sense, a way to, uh, it's good shop practice. But in the philosophical sense, it's about having the right mental space to approach your work and to address it properly so that it is in front of you in a way that's comfortable for you to, to attack and to complete. You have an injury folder, which is exactly what it sounds like, a place where you chronicle the times that you've hurt yourself. Is there a worst injury in that folder? Uh, yeah, there's a time I was holding on to a piece of wood and drilling a hole through it, and the drill bit, a special kind called a Forstner bit, uh, jumped through and tore up the inside of my left pinky. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't have to go to the hospital that day. I was able to use butterfly closures to, uh, to get that cut to heal. But the picture is absolutely gruesome. <laughs> uh, it, it's a horror show. Is there one piece of advice you'd give to a novice woodworker that trumps all other suggestions and rules? Oh, wow. Yes, it is that time can replace skill if you don't know what you're doing. And by that, I mean, if you're not sure how to do a step, simply going as slow as you can, making sure at each step that you've measured carefully, that you've set your thing up, that you've got your cutting blades at set to the correct levels. If you go really slowly, you can have this, you can achieve something that you didn't think was possible that a skilled person could do in maybe half the time. You write about the importance of self-imposed deadlines to get things done. How do you hold yourself accountable to these? <laughs> uh, I tell other people what they are. So if I want to complete a costume, I decide upon the right Comic-Con that I want to wear it, and then I don't keep that information to myself. I tell as many people as I can about it, and the sheer shame of not living up to the expectation that I have set helps me get it done. This book is all about creation, your creative process, making suggestions to people on how they can refine their process. But creative people inevitably have moments where they get stuck, where the ideas just aren't flowing. How do you get over maker's block? Well, you know, just that phrase you said, creative people occasionally get stuck. I actually think that getting stuck is a key part of every creative endeavor. 
the stuck part, the parts where we stumble, where we feel uh, a, a imposter complex, where we don't think we have any right to be doing what we're doing, that happens to every builder on every build. Um, and the more you do it, the, the, the more intense it gets. Um, and to me, it's really important to normalize that nobody escapes from that feeling. There's no amount of, of facility with a, with a process that, in, that insulates you from, from the, the, the vicissitudes of, 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 of life. You know, the, uh, there's a famous phrase that no plan survives first contact with implementation. And this is really, really true. Adam, you quote Kurt Vonnegut in the pages of Every Tool's a Hammer. The quote is, travel plans gone astray are dancing lessons from God. How does that apply to the art of making? Well, it applies in that uh, you never end up where you think you're going to end up. Uh, when you start to solve a problem, whether you're telling a story, on the, uh, whether you're weaving an audio scape to tell a story in audio for the radio, or you're making a dress or you're building a table, you're setting out to solve a specific set of problems. And as you build that story, as you build that narrative, as you put together that object, you encounter difficulties, you encounter challenges you didn't expect, you encounter aesthetic choices you didn't realize needed to be made. And as you tackle each of those things, the object that you're working on, the projects that you're working on changes, and it changes in ways you couldn't have predicted. And I submit that almost every single project we embark on ends up somewhere different than we thought it would. And that's not a failure. That is just iteration. And the fact that we don't know where it's going to end up is the reason that we do it. Uh, why would we set out to paint a painting if we knew exactly what it would look like when we were done? We do these things because they teach us about ourselves as we're going. You call cardboard the gateway to making. Why is cardboard your favorite material to create with? Uh, I love it. It's structural. It's lightweight. It's easy to glue with a multitude of different solutions, and it's everywhere. There's not a person in the United States who doesn't have a stack of Amazon boxes somewhere in their house. Uh, and so I love a material that is simple, cheap, and ubiquitous. You mentioned telling stories and learning that process as part of writing this book. One of my favorite stories of yours from this book was about the first prized piece of cardboard that you came across in the Bay Area. What length did you go to in protecting your first ever prized piece of cardboard on your way home after finding it? <laughs> yeah, I was about 13, 14 years old, uh, and I was pushing home this giant refrigerator box and a, uh, a local bully in my neighborhood tried to take it from me. And I am a very non-confrontational person, <laughs> but I pushed back and I would not let him take my refrigerator box. I was willing to defend it with my body. <laughs> oh, what did you end up making with it? Uh, I made the cockpit of a spaceship for a short film that my friends, the Caro twins, were making. Uh, and then once we were finished making that film, it took about two days to shoot it on Super 8. Uh, I took the cockpit and I installed it in the closet of my parents' guest room. Uh, and I, I went on many missions in that closet. I painted a star field on the back wall. <laughs> uh, that, that cardboard refrigerator box was absolutely the gateway to my love of Star Wars and special effects and building sets and props. Adam, I want to get to uh, Savage Builds in a second, but we can't have you on without asking a Mythbusters question. When you guys put this together in the early 2000s, oh, number one, did you have any idea the type of following that this program would become over a decade plus? And, and also, how much fun was being a part of, uh, of Mythbusters from the beginning? 
Well, first of all, no, of course, we had no idea how it would do. It's television, and I'd worked behind <laughs> the scenes in television and movies for a decade and a half before this. So I knew that, you know, things um, almost never come to fruition. Uh, and even if it goes to pilot, it's never going to go to series. And if it, if it goes to series, it's never going to get picked up. So the fact that we got picked up repeatedly for 13 seasons was unbelievable. And on the, on the way, over the course of 278 episodes, I have never had more fun I have never been more challenged. It was the hardest job I ever had and also the most fun. And Adam, looking forward to the future, I believe starting this June on the Science Channel, you'll be a part of uh, a series called Savage Bills. Tell us a little bit about what, uh, what fans can expect on that program. Savage Builds is an absurd engineering show in which I collaborate with different scientists, engineers, artists, and makers in each episode to build something outlandish and crazy. Uh, in one episode, Tori Belleche, my former co-host of Mythbusters, and I engage in a food fight of epic proportions. <laughs> in the very first episode, um, with permission from Marvel, I made myself an Iron Man suit out of 3D printed titanium that is bulletproof, and we also managed to get it to fly. Wow. Well, based on that, Adam, and of course, without <laughs> giving anything away, uh, how much did you enjoy Avengers Endgame? Uh, I loved I loved Avengers Endgame so much. I'm going to go see it again. It's actually the first time I've ever cosplayed to see a movie. My friend Kishore and I both dressed up as Captain America to enjoy that film. The final chapter of this book is Sweep Up Every Day. That's the title. It's a process that's good for organization, it's meditative, and it's aesthetically pleasing to walk into that space the very next time. Before I bid you adieu, is there anything else that you would like to clean up from our conversation today? <laughs> No, I love that. I'm so happy with the last chapter being what it is. I, I, I love the idea of the conversation between present me, future me, and past me. That when I am cleaning up, I am actually giving a gift to a future version of myself so that they can walk into a shop with a little bit more peace in their head and perhaps see a little bit farther uh, than they would otherwise in order to get the project in front of them done. Um, I really enjoyed those conversations with my future self. You know, it's incredible that this is your first book, Adam. You did a great job as somebody who admits in these pages, you also admitted it during this conversation, that the process of writing the book was a little bit nerve-wracking for you. I thought you hit a home run with it. Congratulations on the new book. He is Adam Savage. He is a maker, former host of Mythbusters, current host of Mythbusters Jr., and soon Savage Builds on the Science Channel. And he's the author of the new book, Every Tool's a Hammer. Life is what you make it. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Adam, thank you so much for the time today, man. Really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. I can't wait to come down there to Austin to read my book. I love your city.